welcome to PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and my guest today is Catherine Stutz, an alum from the class of 2018. Catherine now lives in Baltimore, where she's a PhD student in the Department of Classics at Johns Hopkins University. Today, as always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio right here in Tacoma. Here's Catherine. Catherine, welcome to the Puget Sound podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I'm so, so happy to have you here. And I want to start by just situating you now for people listening. And then over the course of our conversation, I want to go back and talk about how you got to where you are. But what now in this moment do you do every day? <laughs> um, that answer is a little different uh, right now than it was a few months ago, um, as you might understand. Um, but right now um, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, um, and my day normally looks like getting up, making coffee, uh, sitting down at this table right here and doing various types of uh, work for my research and for my seminars, um, for my degree, for a PhD at Johns Hopkins. Um, more typically, before all of this started happening in March, um, my day would normally involve uh, like a 15-minute walking commute that direction to the campus um, where all of our facilities are located. Um, but now I'm sort of grounded here um, with the ability to like sneak over to the library every once in a while. Sure. And I think that the idea of a PhD is something that is very often veiled in just mystery, particularly outside of the natural sciences. One thing that I notice a lot is oftentimes when what I'll call the general public, writ large people who are not in academia or at universities, think of research, the like clip art image is a lab coat and a pipette. (laughs) So I think even hearing you say, well, I'm working on my research is, is maybe not intuitive for somebody to think, what does that look like in classics and in a degree that will span many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I realize um, I, I have a very sort of insular group of people in my life who have a much better picture of what my, my experience looks like, either because they're doing it or because they're my loved ones who, you know, daily see me go through this and talk with me about it. Um, I am doing a classics degree. So that is primarily focused in the way that I'm doing it on languages. Um, so I'm working right now on Greek and on Latin. Um, and then also I have a number of languages that I sort of dip my toes in for other reasons. Um, so I've been working on French and also on German uh, and also a little bit on ancient Egyptian kind of for breadth of knowledge. Um, so. In each of those languages, I basically am trying to like go to the next level up. Um, So I've been doing Greek for at this point like six years or so, seven years. Um, So you know, Greek is decent, um, but it can always be better. Um, Whereas Egyptian, I only started last year, so it's still a question of like learning grammar and basic vocab. Um, So I spend a lot of time kind of working on languages and reading in different languages, um, which is more the class uh, side of things. I, I also do a lot of reading for seminars because I'm I'm a second year. So this is early on in the PhD phase. Um, I'm going to take at least five years to do this degree. Most people in my program have taken more like seven to nine. So it's a long process. Um, but then I also do some sort of research that is much more like what you would see in that kind of lab idea. Um, So I actually have a class that's called a lab. Um, We don't meet in a lab, but we actually 
would be meeting in a lab on campus if we were able to be on campus. Um, I'm doing a class that is focused on the way that Greek and Roman culture have influenced the development of the city of Baltimore. Um, Sweet. Yes, I love this class. Um, and it's called Lab, and we do a lot of work that is very hands-on in a digital sort of way. So we go and we look at like casts of classical sculptures that used to be placed in the Peabody Institution, and we figure out um, you know, where they were purchased and why these particular casts were selected and where they eventually ended up and uh, tracking them through all of these archives. So that's, I think in some ways, a little bit more the sort of research that you imagine PhD kind of work involving that kind of digging in to find historical information. Well, and that is actually a perfect example and a perfect segue because I have also been preparing to put you on the spot with another thing that I think is sometimes shrouded to the general public. And that's the idea of um, sort of academic utility. I think a lot of people think about a degree as a means to an end and for a maybe um, more liberal arts style degree, something like at the undergraduate level, a history or an English or a classics degree. I think it's not always evident to people, you know, what do you do with that? And the class that you just mentioned feels to me like a perfect example of why it matters for mm -hmm. people to learn Latin and Greek and to think about Rome mm -hmm. for us today. So I wonder if you can talk a little more about that. Absolutely. That's sort of one of my key things. Um, I, as you well know, I got two degrees at Puget Sound. I got a BA in anthropology and also a BA in classics. Um, so uh, it was a very specific point in my life sort of end of your senior year, beginning of mine, my last senior year, when I figured out- We should out, say for people, Catherine and I were in school at the same time. So we know each other, but we're split out by a year. So when she's dating to our individual timelines, uh, that's what's up. It's because we lived it together. Um, so this would have been like end of 2000, 2017, minus graduation year, 2018 um, during mine. I began to figure out that I wanted to do classics more professionally. Um, and that as much as I loved anthropology, it wasn't what I wanted to do full time. Um, but one of the things I, I was really worried about losing with that was how connected anthropology kept me to current issues and applicability. Um, we'd gone to a couple of different um, anthropology conferences in specifically applied anthropology. So the question of keeping our academic work really relevant to helping people and figuring out current problems. Um, and classics obviously is thought of very differently as something that is, you know, go dig up really old dead people that aren't relevant to the modern issues in any way. Um, so with classics, I've tried really hard to keep my work um, connected to modern life um, and to things that are important to me. Um, and I've been really, really grateful to have my department very supportive of that. Um, my current project in my lab class is actually about monuments, which has turned out to be wildly relevant right now um, because Baltimore, like a lot of cities across America, has been part of this ongoing discussion about what does it mean to have statues of different figures up? And especially if they're statues of people who have done really bad things, there's often a sense that, you know, most people who have statues got those statues for doing really bad things. So Baltimore is situated in a very tense position where it served, you know, existed right on the line between North and South during the Civil War and was the site of a huge amount of conflict there. Um, so looking at the way that classics influenced Baltimore can really help illuminate a lot of these problems with 
you know, what is Baltimore's culture of statues? Um, Baltimore actually being a city that was called the city of monuments, like it's a huge part of what's going on in the life of the city then and now. And is understanding the Greek and Roman influence on that part of decoding what an individual statue might mean? Or is it part of a much bigger conversation of even how do we understand any monument in a society? Is it some of both? Is it neither? I, I would say like it's that whole thing. Um, so I'm connecting a lot of the statues in Baltimore to statues in the UK because that's sort of part of the cultural conversation. Um, so I'm working really heavily with the Peabody right now. Um, and there's this whole discussion of you know, like who Peabody was and he actually lived in England for a huge amount of his life. Um, so their culture of statues was something that he imported to Baltimore. Um, and I'm, I'm looking right now at a lot of like Victorian era epitaphs um, and how those incorporate Greek and Roman ideas and actually ran into this fascinatingly weird Scottish monument for a, a deceased like polar explorer. He was this man who had gone to try to find the Northwest Passage um, and had like disappeared into the Arctic. Um, as they did, yeah. As you do, you know, British or Scottish in this period, they just, they send you off to the Arctic and then you die. Um, and they, you know, found his bones, brought them back and put up this monument to him. And it, it has written on it, the line decorum est pro patria mori, which means it is suitable to die for one's country, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating statement about what people thought was a, an appropriate way to commemorate a loss. Right. And also part of this colonialist project. And it's also a quote from the poet Horace, who was one of the court poets for the Emperor Augustus, the first Emperor of Rome. So it's all connected. <laughs> it's absolutely. And that particular quote also begs another really contemporary question, which is what is a country, right? How do you define that kind of indiscreet unit? What does something different mean to whom? What does dying for your country mean? Can you measure that objectively or is it always having to do with what an individual understood herself to be doing at that time? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's also super significant to say, you know, that this was a man who is framed as part of this British expedition, but was Scottish. And so what does that mean? <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> the complexities of what the UK is doing. Um, and then also the fact that that's not the whole quote. Um, I mean, it's part of a larger poem, but notably they've chopped the first two words off because the full sentence is dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, which is, it is both sweet and fitting to die for one's country. So there's, you know, an acknowledgement that maybe it isn't actually so sweet to be lost like that. Um, so the, like the nationalism and the personal feeling of the tragedy, I think are at, very much at odds and the tension is in the Latin. So it's useful to know the Latin for that reason. Well, and it's so interesting because I think one thing that maybe a lot of folks don't realize is the work that is done by scholars like yourself to decode some of those things in the public imagination in a way that we never even need to see. So if we think about, I'm gonna steal what I think is maybe um, a, a common phrase in the public domain, but I guess we'll find out if people contact me and say that they've never heard of this before. Um, <laughs> if you think about Abraham Lincoln as a really, a figure that looms really large in the American imagination, one thing that a lot of folks know about Lincoln, I would say you could probably tick off like five, but is that he was assassinated at the Ford Theater. And if you talk to people with sort of one more order of magnitude of knowledge about that, people probably know John Wilkes Booth and Six Emperor Tyrannus. Yep. And even if you could not say what Six Emperor Tyrannus meant, the yep. tone and concept and implication of that 
is woven into the narrative of Lincoln and who he was and what his death, again, dying for your country, what his death meant to the United States. And a lot of the way that somebody like me has that information is that it has trickled down through the public imagination from scholarly work that pulls on all those threads. Yeah, absolutely. I tend to assume that like if people know Latin, like any phrase of Latin, they probably maybe have heard of like, um, I'm going to say this wrong because in classical Latin, it would be veni, vidi, vici, but it's people know it as veni, vidi, vici, or vici. I don't know what the popular, like people know that, or maybe if they're American history buffs, they know six Semperturanus. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to ask you, Catherine, on the same note about what are your research interests outside of the coursework that you're doing right now, but within classics? What gets you to sit up straight? What are the things that you just think, OMG, I could talk about for hours and hours and hours in my field? Opening a, a huge, huge Pandora's box. <laughs> um, and the best part is I can actually see from Six Emperor Tyrannus too, um, because... <laughs> Perfect. It's like I did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the, the Sikh Semper Tyrannus, for, for people who aren't history buffs or, or don't know this, um, the thing that John Wilkes Booth shouted from the stage uh, right before, right after he assassinated Lincoln, um, was Sikh Semper Tyrannus means uh, thus always to tyrants, like thus is the fate of tyrants always. Uh, and the notable thing is that this is supposedly what was shouted by Brutus right after he assassinated Caesar in the Senate. Um, and this happened partly because Booth's, John Wilkes Booth's brother uh, was actually an actor who had played Brutus on the stage, which I just think is the weirdest possible way that this could have happened. I did not know that, but that is amazing because I had always assumed that this was sort of like a deeply held, like if he knew something like that, that must inform. And it's, it was just that like he and his brother were shooting the breeze and his brother was like, hey, I got this job. I had no idea. John Wilkes Booth was actually super jealous because it had made his brother a huge star and he had wanted to be <laughs> too. So, so he went to one-up him? <laughs> yeah. He was like, well, I'm going to kill the president and then shout your tagline. Uh, there's a joke, I did not make this up, but there's a joke online where somebody was like, Six Semper Tyrannus is like if one of Chris Hemsworth's lesser known brothers like went and killed a political figure and then shouted like it was one of Thor's slogans. <laughs> like that's... That's what we should be imagining, um, which I think is fair because if you look at sort of what Lincoln's work was and, and you think about who Lincoln was as a person, does it have anything to do with Caesar in any relevant way? I'm sure Wilkes had some idea of why it did, but you know, not the American consciousness, consciousness anymore. Um, and I think something that's interesting to think about with that is the way that um, Six Empatronis was used as a way of kind of communicating Brutus's philosophy as a character that, you know, he had this idea that things were fated. Brutus was a name that meant something. The original Brutus, one of Brutus's ancestors had killed the last king of Rome and then Rome was a republic after that. Um, so it was this great gilded name that Brutus carried around, this fate, this destiny that hung over him. And so Six Emperor Tyrannus was actually a phrase that was invented I think to kind of help characterize Brutus as this kind of person who sees, you know, this is what always happens to tyrants. There will always be somebody who rises up against them, which is a neat idea. It's not actually what the real Brutus said when he assassinated, <laughs> he assassinated Caesar. Um, the closest 
you know, the earliest account that we have of the assassination of Caesar um, comes from my favorite author, which is where my insane classical passions come in, um, who was a senator at the time, who was in the Senate when Caesar was killed, um, was not part of the conspiracy, not because he didn't support it, but simply because he wasn't asked. And there's a lot of cool scholarship on why he was not asked to be part of the conspiracy to kill Caesar. Um, but apparently, according to him, Brutus, after he killed Caesar, got up, uh, you know, held the knife up and said, I do this in the name of Cicero, which might not be a name you've heard, <laughs> certainly might not be a name that everyone's heard. Um, but that's that's the person I'm most interested in, Cicero, who's a, a Roman senator around the time of Caesar, who was trying very hard to resist Caesar's tyranny um, and worked to try to put the state back together after his death. Um, he was the main sort of, with his death, that was really the fall of the Roman Republic, at which point Rome became an empire. Like what you hear? I'm Brittany Jackson assistant director of admission and multicultural admission coordinator. If you're enjoying the Puget Sound podcast, you might wanna consider taking a closer look. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've developed a lot of virtual programming to help answer your questions about Puget Sound. We offer student-led snapshot tours, information sessions, one-on-one -on -one appointments, special events, and so much more. Check out the full list of offerings at pugetsound.edu slash visit. We can't wait to meet you. I'm so curious to talk to you about Cicero because I did know that that was sort of a, a hub, maybe for lack of a better word, of your research interests and your scholarly interests. Yeah. But I'm curious about where that comes from. Is that something that came up in an undergraduate class? Is that something that you, how did you find your way to that? Because it does feel to someone who does not have that kind of expertise, like it would take a little bit of work to get there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's kind of the question. And it does in many ways, um, it is absolutely part of, it's like the, the linchpin of my undergraduate career in many ways. Um, I started out not in classics at all. It took me a, a fairly long time to enroll in a classics course and then to have my first classics advisor kind of push me into doing Greek. And I did Greek for a few years and eventually was encouraged to go study abroad in Rome um, and studied abroad in Rome and came back. And you know, eventually one of my professors was like, maybe you should learn Latin. And I was like, Okay, I, I mean, I guess if I want to do this professionally, that's that's a thing I have to do. Okay, um, and so I enrolled in sort of a um, learn all of Latin in a summer kind of course um, that was being taught at Berkeley um, in 2017. God, that feels forever ago, and it was also three years ago. Um, and I, when I was at Berkeley, I, I emailed my you know the the professor I knew would be teaching the Latin reading class at Puget Sound in the fall and, you know, the coming fall. And I said, you know, if, if I can choose what from Latin to focus on, um, you know, who, who should I read? What author should I read in Latin if I have any choice in the matter? And this professor, uh, Eric Orlin said, we're gonna be doing this big thing in the fall. We're gonna be doing this, this whole class project. Um, and I think what would be helpful is if you read Cicero. And I was like, okay, I don't really know anything about him. Um, 
all I know is like, I've read a little bit about Mark Antony, um, you know, Antony and Cleopatra guy, and he really hated Cicero. Um, so I was very like, oh, Antony's, you know, kind of a party boy, kind of fun to learn about. He has a lot of like exploits. And I was like, okay, well this, um, maybe, maybe we'll read some Cicero in which he'll complain about Mark Antony and that'll be fun. Uh, so I did that that summer. I read, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of texts, all of all of this material from Cicero's Philippics, which are these speeches where he's like, Mark Antony is the worst person to ever exist. And I was like, okay. I mean, it's good writing. Uh, certainly <laughs> fun to hear about Mark Antony making a fool of himself. Um, and I got back to campus and enrolled in Eric's reading class where we were going to read some Latin. And he said, actually, you know, we're going to read a little bit of Latin, but then what we're going to do is we're going to play a game where I'm going to assign every student in this class to play a character uh, from the end of the Roman Republic. So we're going to, you know, Caesar's just been killed and I'm going to assign Mark Antony and Cicero and all of those people who are in the Senate. Uh, you know, we're even out, we're even going to have a Cleopatra. And I went up and I said, I, I want to be Mark Antony. I think he's fun. I think he's a party boy. I think I would have a good time being chaotic. Um, and Eric looked at me and said, mm, no, that's not, that's not what you're going to do. You're, you, you know, you know a lot about Antony. You've read Antony's biography in Greek. You've read all of Cicero complaining about Mark Antony. That's not valuable to your academic journey. Um, you're going to be Cicero. And I was like, but Cicero's just, he just complains a lot. <laughs> and Eric was like, <laughs> okay, go do your research and then come back and complain when you've educated yourself about who Cicero is as a person. Um, and I was like, but okay. So I went home and I started doing a lot of, of digging into who Cicero is. And I was like, oh my God, I was given this text in which he's just complaining. Um, but there are just, there's so much out there about Cicero beyond these political speeches. He's one of the best surviving ancient authors, period, hands down. The exceptions are all sort of medical texts. If you're looking at literary production in Rome, it's, it's all Cicero. He has all of these court speeches because he was an attorney and he has hundreds upon hundreds of letters that he wrote to the people in his life. And he has bad poetry that he wrote as a boy. And we have all of it. Um, so you can see his the entire spectrum of his life, who he was as a person, his joys, the things that made him happy, his, his emotional entreaties to his best friend saying, it's 3 a.m. and I can't sleep and you're in Greece and I'm in Rome and I can't talk to you. I'm just going to write even though I have nothing to say. Um, and him saying, you know, this is my, my daughter who is the image of my soul um, and I love her. And, you know, this is like the best like child a father could possibly ask for and then his absolute grief when she dies and I just fell completely in love um and it's it's stayed around since then I wrote my PhD proposals on the concept of I want to write about Cicero I'll figure out what about Cicero when I get here but I want to write about Cicero and that was the thing that's guided me for the last three years I love truly everything about that <laughs> One thing that I want to tease out that stands out to me as not only very reminiscent of my own experiences at Puget Sound, but also that has, I think, come up a lot on the podcast. And one thing I say sometimes when I'm talking about this project um, internally is that I think of this podcast series like audio pointillism. So if you listen to one episode, you're going to hear about a single person's experiences. You're going to learn a lot of cool things. If it lines up with your own interests, it's going to be super helpful and illuminating 
But if you listen to four or five or six or all of them, like a few people that I can name personally, um, <laughs> that you start to see what the themes are. Yeah. And one theme that I think has really fallen out of this whole series and however many, you know, 80 or however many episodes we've done, but has never been expressed quite how you just expressed it, is this idea of faculty at Puget Sound investing so deeply in their students. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the story you just told is not just that Eric emailed you back and said, here's something helpful for you to read over the summer. But that he went out of his way to say no to you when you said, I want to be Mark Antony. And one of the most valuable experiences I had in college with a professor, although there were lots and lots, was also a professor going out of their way to say no to me about something that I wanted to do in a way that made both of our lives a lot more complicated (laughs) for the period in which we were having that conversation. And that to me feels like such a higher order type of teaching is to be able to look at a student and say, I hear you that that's what you want to do, but I also see you. And I think I can see that something else has to happen here. That feels special to me. Absolutely. Yeah. That was something that was incredibly, incredibly valuable about my experience as a student in the classics department of Puget Sound. I just, the number of times that that, Every, every professor in the department was willing to sit down and be extremely honest with me about what I would need to do to keep going in this field, which is a very difficult and small field to keep going in. Um, and also to nurture my actual interests and to tell me, you know, you should only do this if this is what you love, because there isn't a future in this. And I, I know that. Um, but at the same time, there's the five years of future that I have here or now the four years. And it's been amazing. And I'm radically excited about the next four years. Um, But yeah, absolutely. The degree to which Eric was willing to say, you might want to do this, but it's not what you need. It's not going to help you. Um, That spring, I, you know, I was sitting there with my bundle of sister emotions after the semester had ended and uh, brought them to my advisor, who is not a Cicero scholar. Uh, Brett Rogers is a Hellenist. He does Greece. He does not care about Cicero. Um, he, he, thought, he said that I was cheating on my senior thesis with Cicero at one point, which I thought was a little too true. Um, and at the same time, even though none of that was of his research interest, he still said, okay, here's a conference. Um, here's a, a regional conference that's a good place to start out as an undergrad write your abstract this is when it's due get Cicero out of your system and like the last of that didn't work but that's the first conference in classics that I ever spoke at um so that was enormously valuable that that support from every one of the corners of the department in terms of finding my interests even when it made my professor's lives I think much more difficult um that I wouldn't just follow a single path yeah I also want to ask you about how you came to the classics department at Puget Sound because you mentioned that that was not something that was necessarily like right square in front of you when you came to college. And I think that's the case for a lot of students. There's not a lot of high schools that teach Latin or Greek or classics. I think there are frankly even fewer schools that teach it in a way that feels dynamic and not, oh, I have to take this Latin class. I talk to a lot of students coming out of high school who I think have interests that are relevant to classics, but I think they don't know that because it's kind of hard to see what's that all about. So I would love to just sort of steal from your experiences in terms of 
what you were interested in, saw for yourself coming to college and how that ended up taking you to the classics department. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I will never, ever pass an opportunity to encourage people who aren't into classics necessarily to go give some of this a look. I think there's a lot you can get out of classics, even if you're never going to sit down and take a Latin or Greek class, um, because that's a lot of work. And I know that. And there are other ways to get involved with history that I think are really, really interesting and rewarding. Um, and that's, in fact, how I started. I didn't like enroll in Latin or Greek early on during my my career when I was a freshman. My First semester, I had one class with a classics professor, um, but it was being taught through the honors department. So this was um, Iceland Melchior's class on the Odyssey, which I thought was fun. I was having a good time, but it would not have drawn me into classics. I think I didn't fully realize that it gave me, it it was giving me keys into classics, but I think I didn't see those doors. (laughs) Um, But I was enrolling, I, I I was going into enrollment for the second semester. Um, and I'd looked across like kind of all of the humanities departments. I'd looked into English classes and uh, anthropology classes and kind of was just browsing through the course catalog. And I saw a class on myth and I was like, oh, I, you know, myth is cool. That's not inherently a classics thing. I bet I, I can go to a, a classics course on mythology and learn a lot that will be helpful to me as an anthropology student. Um, but it was an upper level myth course. It was, you know, it didn't have any prereqs, but it was like a 300 level class and you were supposed to be sort of an upperclassman to be in it. Um, so I went to the honors advisor, uh, George Irving, and was like, I want to take this class. And he said, really? Do, do you really? Okay. And I was like, I, 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 I'll, I'll arrange it. Just, you know, give me a rec letter to bring to the professor to say the student is academically engaged, so he'll let me in. Um, and Irving was like, okay, you know, here's your email. Go, go talk to that professor. Um, so I sent an email to the professor teaching the class and said, hi, I'm a freshman. I don't have any experience, uh, but I really think your class sounds really fun and I want to take it. And he was like, okay, um, you don't, you've never taken a classics course before. Uh, you're a freshman. Why don't we, why, why don't you come to my office hours and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about why you're interested and if you're a good fit. Um, and if you're not, well, maybe we'll find something else for you. And I was like, okay. Um, so I went to the, the classics lounge where you wait for the professors and I had my laptop with me. And it had on it a, a, my laptop at this point had a decal of Iron Man <laughs> because I was very into comic books um, those couple of years. And I was waiting for the professor to come out. And eventually five minutes in, Brett Rogers, the classics professor comes out and he, he kind of takes a look at the laptop. He said, are you, are you Catherine? You're waiting to have office hours with me? I was like, yeah. And he's like, are you into comic books? I was like, yeah, I am. And he was like, okay, do you want you want to talk about comic books? And so we had a whole conversation about comic books that then became a conversation about Tolkien. Um, And I ended up talking about how I taught myself Elvish in high school and how I was really interested in languages and like fantasy and all of this. And he said, okay, well, you know a lot about language evolution and Tolkien's development of languages. The whole first unit of this myth course is about language evolution and all of that kind of scholarship that Tolkien did on proto-Indo-European language theory and how that like create, how languages are created. Um, and you're kind of prepared for that. So I'm going to count that as a prereq. Um, the class is probably going to fill up because it usually does when you get blocked out because you're a freshman and you're registering last, send me an email and I'll get you an ad code. Um, and then that was the first, first classics course that I ever took. Um, 
And I, you know, enrolled in Greek the next year and did a lot of myth theory and did mythology for years and years and years before I ever found Latin and Roman contexts. Um, so I still dabble in myth every once in a while. I'm um, working right now on a proposal for a paper about Cicero and Tolkien right now. So that's actually very exciting. I just found a connection that I've been hunting for for several years. So. Can we hear what it is or will that like give away your idea and your research to say publicly? Um, I'm, I'm not super worried about someone swooping this tape because I think it's a pretty niche subject. Um, but it actually, it goes into the what I'm reading right now because I don't have a lot of free time to read for fun. Um, but one of the things that I'm kind of reading for fun in the midst of this is poetry by this um, young poet who died tragically in World War One. But before that, he had been a college buddy of Tolkien's. Um, and so when he died, Tolkien actually compiled his poems and published them posthumously for him. And um, one of them is a really beautiful poem about Cicero. So that's, that's my, that's my connection right there. <laughs> I'm also curious to talk a little bit about um, your experience with classics, but also at Puget Sound more generally as a really emblematic experience of what's valuable about the liberal arts. And I think one thing that stuck out to me in hearing that story you just told about that myth class and your entry to classics is that you very much had the space in your curriculum. Puget Sound really structures curriculum so that you can kind of poke around and take a myth class here. And if it turns out that's not what you want to do, well, you didn't waste your time, right? Or you didn't waste a credit. It still counts towards something. It still fulfills your elective requirements. Um, but it also allows you to come in thinking, man, I have a lot of things I like. I have a lot of things I might want to do. I'm going to test a bunch of them out. And that that might continue to evolve over the time that you're in college. You mentioned that it wasn't until your senior year that you really started to feel like, okay, I, I see classics as my professional path. I'm curious about, was that just a natural gradual evolution or did something happen where you could suddenly see your way into that? That's a really, really good question. Um, I think Puget Sound absolutely was an environment in which I got to experiment a lot. And I very much spent most of my time up until my senior year experimenting, which is, I think, why I ended up taking an extra year. Um, it got to the point where I had one kind of chance left to go abroad. And if I was going to do that, it was going to mean an extra semester. And at that point, it was like, if I have an extra semester, an extra year wouldn't hurt. Um, so I was applying to this program in Rome um, that was going to be a semester in Rome. And when I got in, that kind of decided for me that I was going to go to Rome. And I think that it was the experience of going to Rome that actually settled me. This was um, fall of 2016. So I was actually in Rome for the election, the last election cycle, which was an experience. Um, <laughs> being in Rome definitely kind of solidified classics for me, but it was the, the period before that, during which I'd gotten to do a huge range of other things that had helped me figure out that that was actually what I wanted to do. Um, so I, you know, I, I think a lot of, I have a lot of friends who at Puget Sound, they declared a major and then changed their major or added a second major. And I, I think I'm actually kind of the oddball in that I, my sophomore year said, you know, I want to do classics and anthropology. And I went to Brett Rogers and said, will you be my classics advisor? And I went to Andrew Gardner and I said, will you be my anthropology advisor? And like that never changed. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I also 
did a lot of things around my majors. Um, so I worked in the Natural History Museum at Puget Sound, which has really, really informed my work with museums, which became the backbone of my anthropology degree. And then I'm still using that for classics. Um, one of the key things in my entrance interview for Hopkins um, was actually about my work in museums because we have a really wonderful archeological collection here. Um, and one of the classics professors works really heavily with that collection. She said, would you be you know, interested in working more with the museum and working more with um, artifacts and archeology span even though your, your specialty is much more you know, literature. Um, and I said, that, yeah, absolutely. And she's the one teaching this lab class that I'm in right now. So the way that I see museums and work in museums as part of both an academic piece of my life and also sort of a public facing piece of my life. I think museums are a really unique way for people to get information about the ancient world. Um, and museums have like such potential to reach out and they're not always doing that in the best possible way. So I've, I'm absolutely fascinated by how museums work. Um, and that was something that Puget Sound 100% fostered. The fact that I could just like walk into the Slater Museum and work with animal specimens um, and work with the history of the collection. My first ever big independent research project was on archival paperwork from the Slater Museum that the director, um, Peter, let me bring to the Puget Sound archives and hug and build into this whole research project. So, yeah. <laughs> I could truly talk to you all day, but we're almost at the end of our time. So I'm going to ask you the four questions that I ask everybody at the end of every podcast. The first question is, where is your favorite place on campus? Oppenheimer, the cafe. <laughs> I cannot count the number of times that I would curl up beneath the big glass dome, music dome and study there. I, I love getting that much light. It was the the biggest requirement for moving into my own place for the first time here was getting huge windows. That was the only thing that I really needed. <laughs> Second question is, what are you reading right now? And you've touched on this already, but I'd be glad to hear more about it or hear about something else that's on your list. Yeah. Um, so the poet that I'm reading, work of, uh, his name is Jeffrey Boxsmith. Um, the college friend of, of J.R.R. Tolkien's. Um, that's kind of my, my primary fun reading right now. Um, but I did also get a volume recently on polar libraries, which is the collections of books that were brought on exploratory uh, ships that went to go explore the North and South Pole during the 19th century. What's the best place to eat in Tacoma? I had such a hard time thinking about this. I have so many, so many favorites. Um, I, it's it's a tie for me between Silk Tie and Rosewood Tavern. And lastly, what is it that makes Puget Sound special? It's absolutely the people. The fact that I, at this point, am you know, two years out of college and in many, where, many ways, three years out of my original graduating class. And I still talk absolutely daily with multiple people from Puget Sound. I mean, some of my absolute best friends went to Puget Sound, even though I have really good best friends from high school who I still see regularly. Uh, the core of people who keep me going right now are my best friends from Puget Sound, the person I'm dating from Puget Sound. It, it, the number of people who I met there who have continued to be a central part of my life is incredible. Catherine Stutz, thank you so much for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. (laughs) Thanks for listening to PS, the Puget Sound podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast.